Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we will be in Acts chapter 2, kind of jumping around, but we'll anchor in Acts chapter 2. This morning, uh, I will be concluding our series on the doctrine of the church, and at the same time, concluding the three-strand series on church planting, combined together into one sermon. Over the past number of weeks, we've been teaching on what is the essence of the church. What is the church? Well, Dr. Wayne Grudem, theologian, professor, and author, says that there are two components. One, the universal church, which we've already talked about. Wayne Grudem says is the community of all true believers for all time. It spans generations. It spans cultures. It is all true believers It is the heavenly assembly, the invisible church, which was not intended to remain invisible, but was to be made visible through local assemblies. Pastor and author Mark Dever says the local church is the most visible part of Christian theology. The local church is to put on display the Christian doctrine. We've talked about that. I encourage you to go look at those sermons regularly as a refresher. Uh, We've talked about the roles and responsibilities. We talked about membership, accountability, and authority, that the visible church is a local body with many members who, for the most part, align in doctrine, core convictions, and teaching. They're aligned in mission, who they are and what they do. It's kind of what I'll be talking about this morning. And they're aligned in ministry philosophy, how they go about doing that ministry. These three things shape the church culture, but ultimately that culture must be governed by God-designed love. Now, one of the greatest places for us to find what God's picture of love is is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, often known as the love chapter, and used at many, uh, many weddings But you know what? It has really little to do with the love between a husband and a wife. It has everything to do with the culture of the church. That's actually what Paul was writing about and who Paul was writing to in his letter to the Corinthian church when he painted this picture of what Christian community looks like, what the, the local church looks like. He says it's a body full of patience, The virtue, not like patients in a hospital, but full of patience and kindness. He says it's a community of believers that are absent of unchallenged envy, boasting, arrogance, and rudeness. He says they're full of members who do not insist on their own way, who are not easily irritable or resentful, who refuse to rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoice when truth is made clear. A local church that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things for the sake of the gospel. I'm sure you've heard that portion of text before. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul is describing the culture of the church, a gospel-infused, gospel-impacted group of believers. This is the church culture. 
as described in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, a culture that is attractive to those outside who find the opposite of this to be normative. Right? This God-designed love is to set the church apart from the world. Jesus said as much in John 13, 34, and 35 when he told his disciples this. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Now, there's a tall order. You are also to love one another. By this, by this, our love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is one example of how the church is to be that visible part of, Christian, of the Christian doctrine. A culture of God-designed love is a mark or a, a, a demonstration of the church engaging in gospel-formed mission. You likely have heard that term. It's been pretty popular in the church for the last decade or two. Missional communities, everything is mission this and missional that. So when we're talking this morning about what is the mission of the church, I think it's good that we must first define the word mission. So how do we define the mission of the church? See, if we don't define what we mean by mission, we allow for potential confusion and even ineffectiveness within the church. As one author, Stephen Neal, wrote this, he said, if everything is mission, guess what? Nothing is mission. So what is the mission of the church? Why did Jesus leave us here? Why didn't he just take us with him when he ascended? Why did he leave us here? For what purpose? These are good questions. Good questions that believers wrestle with. Why, why are we here? The world is broken. It's not fun. I'm in my mid-40s, and I'm finding things that aren't working quite that I used to a decade or two ago. And it's like, I mean, last night I was taking vitamins, and I aspirated on water. <laughs> and I still, so if I start coughing, it's not because I'm sick. It's because I can't drink water, apparently. Never was it. Well, okay, yeah. The world is broken, right? Like, we look around us and go, Jesus, why are we still here? That's why the mission of the church is important. That's why, brothers and sisters, understanding what the church is, it is vital. Because there are a lot of things in this world that want to tell us what we should be. Some of those things are accurate. Some of those things are slightly accurate. Some of those things are completely wrong. And it's like every radio in the house or TV, it's all just coming in, noise. So how do we determine who we are supposed to be and what we're supposed to be doing here? We must know what the mission of the church is, and we must know what Christ says the mission of the church is. Not culture, not that latest, greatest thing that needs to be, that problem that needs to be taken care of, but what, what has Jesus said about why we're here? Because if everything is mission, nothing is mission, as Stephen Neal says, then we ask the question, are wells in Africa Literary uh, literacy programs in rural India, is that the mission of the church? Combating human trafficking, is that the mission of the church? Combating hunger, poverty, is social justice the ministry or the mission of the church? It is the ministry of the church, but is it the mission of the church? Is loving our neighbor the mission of the church? These are all good questions. And it is good for us to determine that question, why did Jesus leave us here? 
He had purpose. It was intentional. Therefore, we have purpose. We must not confuse the mission of the church with what it simply means to be a Christ follower. These things are good things. Drilling wells in Africa, that's a good thing, providing clean water for those who do not have it. Combating human trafficking, that is a good thing to fight against the injustices in the world. Those are good things. But brothers and sisters, those are things that we do because we're followers of Jesus. And we must not confuse what the mission of the church is with the gamut of good things that we could be doing. This morning, I'd like to begin a working definition of the mission of the church. The Latin root for the English word mission simply means to send. So being sent implies purpose in the sending. So mission means being sent with a specific task. What is the specific task for which the church has been sent? Who has sent us? Those are good questions. Well, God has sent us. It's clear throughout Scripture. We see this all the way beginning with Adam Adam being made in God's image to resemble and represent God to creation. We see Adam fail at his task. And we see Noah continue this task, which, of which he fails. Abraham, the patriarchs, all pick up the torch to carry it but fall short. Then we see Israel, a nation which God sets apart to resemble and represent him to the nations around them. They were given a mission and a purpose. This is who God is. Look at us as we display his glory. Watch us as we follow his ways. Israel failed. They misrepresented who God is. They missed the mission. But as the missionaries passed away, guess what? The mission continued. I love the end of, I don't love it, that, that's me not the right thing. I'm encouraged by the end of, of Moses' life, the end of Exodus into Joshua, and, and it's just, it's just, no, it's not Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy into Joshua, <laughs> Deuteronomy, and it talks about Moses passing away, this big thing, and then guess what? It just starts with, and then Joshua. The mission continued. Moses was probably one of their most amazing leaders that they had had up to that point. And he passed away, but the mission kept going. And we see in the Old Testament, example after example, the brightest and the best, the, 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 the wisest, the strongest, those who should have been capable of fulfilling this mission could not. This is called biblical theology. This is looking at what the Bible is showing us, the narrative of Scripture. God has pulled people out, called them to resemble and represent him. And again and again, we have failed to do so. So in this story, we see, as in the biblical narrative, we see Christ come. And Christ is called the new Adam. He's called the new Israel, the true and better Hebrew. We see Hebrews talk about this a lot as we went through a number of months ago our, book, our series through the book of Hebrews. 
where Jesus was the true and better, what was supposed to happen or intended to happen, which fell short because of sin and human involvement, God fulfilled in Christ, resembling and representing. And so when we ask the question, what is the mission of the church? We see that the narrative of scripture shows that God has sent us to resemble and represent. He calls people out in the Old Testament to resemble and represent him. But we ask, what is the mission of the church specifically? I think that the the short answer of that, which I will take the next, you know, maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes, we'll see, unpacking, is this. The mission of the church is to be disciples and make disciples. That is the mission of the church. Now that it's a multifaceted diamond, so there's many different sides that we look and, and the impact of that, but most simply, the mission of the church is to be disciples and make disciples. This carries both an individual and corporate aspects. It's that we are ambassadors and we are, if you are part of, in Christ, a part of this church, you are in an embassy as well. The church is called to be an embassy. Christians are called to be ambassadors with different roles and responsibilities. And so we're gonna look this morning at Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two gives us a very brief glimpse of the early church in action. It's an example of what this looked like within the early church. This fruit of the gospel shaping the culture of the assembly, resulting in consistent engagement with the Great Commission for both Christians individually and the local church corporately. And so Acts chapter 2, Luke writes this. We're going to be reading 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, says, And they, being the group of believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we get a a quick picture of the early church, of the gospel culture of the church. This is before persecution hit the early church, and so they're, they're growing. They're seeing maturing and discipling happening, and discipleship happening within the church. The Christians are acting as Christ did, so the gospel is being proclaimed and people are coming to faith. Luke even notes that there's favor amongst the surrounding Jews that don't necessarily believe what they believe, but they have, there's, this is a unique picture of the church in a unique season for the church. And so there's some things that we see here. We see that the church is, is, is focused on doctrinal training as taught by the apostles. They grew in their understanding of scripture. They grew in their love for the truth. 
their ability to effectively preach the gospel. We see that uh, further, further down the road in Acts chapter 7. We see Stephen, who's a deacon in the church, powerfully proclaiming the gospel. Tragic ending. Well, shortly tragic for him because he got to go to glory. But powerfully proclaiming the gospel. There was study and training. They were learning. They were working those muscles so they'd be prepared for what was to come. We also see there was genuine fellowship, love for one another. We see, as we continue reading, Acts chapter 5 gives a severe response to those who would pretend to be part of the community, lying and jeopardizing the unity of the church with the story of Ananias and Sapphira and a severe reaction to their lying and disunity within, within the church culture. We also see that communion and community meals were regular. They were regularly gathering to observe the Lord's Supper, to enjoy Christian fellowship together. They were praying together. Prayer was a regular part of what they did in smaller groups within their homes, corporately at the temple. In verse 43, we see that a reverent fear and awe, one of the amazing works that God was doing, those seen as miracles, but also those unseen things, the glorious gospel that was changing people's hearts. The church was rejoicing. We see a community that's centered around the gospel. The gospel was shaping them as a people. It was shaping them as individuals, but it was also shaping them as a corporate identity. The gospel. It shaped the community, and we see the byproducts of this were largely unity and generosity, Rich and poor ate together. There was no social status as there was before. They were eating together, living life together. They prayed together. They took care of one another. We also see that they were attending the corporate worship gatherings together. It says that they attended together the temple to worship God. They were praising God in worship. They gave glory to God together. And they lived honorably before others. In verse 47, it says that they had favor with all people. Their good deeds were a result of the gospel changing their lives. Their words and actions. It was a tangible example to those outside of the community. People took notice. Now, this is a picture of the early church culture but does it directly answer the question, what is the mission of the church, being disciples and making disciples? I think it does and it doesn't. It gives us a picture of what it looks like. But I think we need to look at all of Scripture when we ask the question, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to follow Jesus? We look at the Gospels. Jesus talked about that. We looked at the epistles. The apostles wrote about that. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to make disciples? Confidence in gospel proclamation is part of it. So we see what is the mission of the church. We can, we can quickly just go, well, it's evangelism. Well, that's part of it. But evangelism is more tied to that being a disciple because those who are with Jesus can't help but not talk about Jesus. It is a byproduct. 
Let that be the litmus test that we are looking at our lives. How much am I talking about Jesus in my life? Is Jesus the big deal for me? Or is it something else? Good questions to ask. Searching questions. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? There was confident gospel proclamation, which is an initial action of a disciple and naturally flows out of the Christian and the local church. But we see in this picture in Acts chapter 2, we see an intimate knowledge of God and we see an accurate knowledge of God and a growth toward that direction. Grasping with the mission of the church begins with a clear understanding of the gospel, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and why it matters. Disciples then, being conformed into the image of Christ, resemble and represent God to the world. This is this narrative of scripture, right? Because of Christ, we now can fulfill what we weren't able to fulfill before Jesus came. Because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we now can walk in victory, be disciples, because of his grace in our lives. I love the fact that one of the banners, if you will, of being a disciple of Jesus is not perfection. Paul says that comes, that will come, praise God. I look forward to that. I'm waiting for that day because I'm tired of my imperfections. I don't know about you, but I am tired of them. But perfection here and now is not about being a disciple. Repentance is. It's recognizing regularly my need for Jesus. That I am prone to wander as we sing in the hymn. That I am predisposed to make a mess. My two favorite words in all of scripture, but God. But God in his mercy has made a way of salvation for us so that we can walk in victory in Christ. We can grow in our discipleship. We can be conformed into the image of Jesus, process, the theologians called sanctification. It's being made more like Jesus, less like me. That's a good thing. As the church walks in love, in the love of God, as demonstrated in Acts chapter 2, being disciples and making more disciples just comes naturally. New churches are started and planted just naturally because people are moving. You know, you look at Acts chapter 2, and you don't have to read very much further in the book of Acts, and you see persecution comes. That's not so great. But what comes out of persecution is the gospel spreads. What was happening in Jerusalem now starts to happen in Syria and in regions all around because this community is now replicating itself. That's church planting. That's what we're called to do, 
to be a disciple and to make disciples. And when we run out of room, we plant another church. That's just what happens. Or when God moves you to another area, or if persecution comes and we find ourselves fleeing, we just do what we do as disciples of Jesus, and we boast in the work of God. What I hope to accomplish this morning is to to show us that mission is not so much a box that needs to be checked. I've got evangelism. If I'm a good Christian, I'll just check that. See, I did that. Let me tell you about this thing I did. It's not an, an activity to engage in. It is who we are. It is our DNA because we have been given new life. We were once dead and now we're alive and we boast in who Jesus is and what he has done. That's just, that's just the way it is. Brothers and sisters, that should not be a condemning thing. It should cause us to reflect, but it should cause us to reflect on the gospel, not on ourselves. If, if you're hearing in this sermon and you're instantly going to, I'm not doing, brothers and sisters, stop thinking about ourselves. Let's start thinking about Jesus. Acts chapter two is an example of that. They didn't think of themselves. There was unity in the church. There was those who were in need, weren't in need anymore. We see in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, a portion of text that's called the Great Commission. We've talked about it a lot during this series, and there's a reason for that. It's because the Great Commission is tied directly to the mission of the church, making disciples, being a disciple, and making disciples. Jesus, before he ascended, told his disciples, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That was a radical statement to them because they were national Jewish And they were thinking that God, Yahweh, was for the Jews. That thinking was being radically reshaped. As Jesus was saying, God is for people. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all peoples, all language groups baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So thankful for that last sentence. So thankful that Jesus didn't say, here's your mission, peace out, you're on your own. He didn't. He said, here's the, here is the purpose in which I am leaving you here. If you want some comfort because times are difficult, I would encourage you to read John chapters 14, 15, and 16. Ah, go 17 too. It's this beautiful discussion Jesus teaching with his disciples about the difficulties they were to face in this life and the comfort he would bring them through his Holy Spirit. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is a comforting statement. As we look at being disciples and making disciples, we ask the question, how does this impact? 
What does it impact in my life? How, my thinking, my actions, the way I invest my time and resources, what impact does this have? The picture that we see in Acts chapter two is complete impact, not partial, not categorical. We as Western linear thinkers like to put things in categories and we have our Sunday morning category. This is how I act on Sunday morning and we have our other categories that we might not want as many people to know about, right? We have our categories that we put things in, and that's kind of the way we're designed. The gospel is like the, the, the bomb that just blows up those categories and says, Jesus, in everything. And so what does it mean to follow Jesus? How does it impact our lives and our work, because they were still working. They were still living in the community. They were still buying groceries and doing regular life things, but they were doing them with a different purpose. I think that's a good question to ask ourselves. How is the fact that Christ has saved me impacting my everyday life? Words, actions, attitudes, motivations, or maybe the question before that is, is it impacting my life? Proclaiming the gospel is definitely part of the disciple-making process. It's a byproduct of being a disciple of Jesus. And in order to proclaim the gospel confidently, we, as, see, as we see in Acts chapter 2, we also must know and pursue knowing Jesus intimately and accurately. We cannot teach others to observe what Jesus commanded unless we know what he commanded. And so as we grow in our accurate and intimate knowledge of Jesus, our hearts begin to change. We begin to be conformed into his image. But so do our actions. The outflow, our words, our actions begin to change because our hearts are being changed. It's not the other way around. You can quickly fall into legalism if it's the actions that change in order to change. It's not, it's this way. God changes our hearts. Therefore, we act differently. God changes our hearts. Therefore, we speak differently. God changes our hearts. Therefore, when I act out of the flesh, I repent because it grieves me, because I know it grieves him. Right? You see this? It's, it's, a, it's a substance change. That's why scripture uses images like you were dead in your trespasses, but now you are alive in Christ, Ephesians chapter two. Like that's a pretty good image. It helps us understand like dead guys can't do much, right? They're dead. You, you who are dead in your trespasses are now alive in Christ, So our actions change, our words change, our desires change. We want what Jesus wants. We love that which Jesus loves, and we hate that which Jesus hates. That's why our sin grieves us. So engaging in the mission of the church requires first a transformed heart. Being a disciple of Jesus begins with and I love the imagery that the prophet Ezekiel uses, a heart of stone 
being removed and a heart of flesh being put in. Guess what? That's not something we can do. That's not something we can force. That is something God and God alone does. But praise God for that. Praise God that if you are in Christ, he has given you a heart of flesh. And he is working for your sanctification to become more like him. So we engage in the mission of being a disciple and making disciples. We come to church to grow in our accurate knowledge of Jesus. We share with others about what God is doing in our lives to grow in our intimate knowledge of Jesus. You know, when you see him working in the world around you. It grows your trust. A quick story. We, were, we went down and visited my daughter, Ellie, our, our daughter, Ellie. In, uh, she's working in missions in uh, Mexico. And we, <clears throat> excuse me, we uh, took her away for the weekend to spend some time in San Diego. And then we hit up Joshua Tree National Park. I was telling this story to Alan. Sorry, Alan, you get to hear it twice this morning. But uh, I will make it quicker than what I shared with Alan. <laughs> uh, did you know that like on all of the signs of Joshua Tree National Park, I think it might be like the park slogan, three words, all of their signs, don't die today. <laughs> Joshua Tree National Park, that's a great sales slogan. And seriously, bullet points of ways you can die in the park. And so we're like, let's go. So we go into the park. It was beautiful. It was well worth it. Uh, suggest staying in the car. <laughs> but we, uh, we decided to uh, take, take this hike up. And um, one, of, one of the staff on, on the campus where Ellie is serving uh, said Joshua Tree National Park is one of his top three favorite places in the world. He's a rock climber. So he gave us the lowdown of where to hit to make our one day uh, most impactful. So we're on this one hike that we did and quickly realized we weren't outfitted for this hike. And our 20-ounce water bottles was not going to be sufficient. <laughs> and uh, so halfway up, we decided, yeah, let's go back to the car. And we turned around and started heading back down. And part of the way down, we stopped in the shade for a little rest. And Ellie, our, our daughter, hops up onto this boulder. We're off the trail. And I mean, we're on the side of a mountain, right? A mountain from Northwest. OK, it was a hill. Uh, but it was a big hill. And uh, we were on the side of the trail. Ellie hops up on this rock. And Becky, my wife, is standing next to her. And I'm facing them just a couple feet away on the trail. And I hear something that I shouldn't that just sounded off. And then, you know, the hair on the back of my neck stands up, and I catch some movement right next to Becky, like no joke, like less than two feet from her. This rattlesnake comes out of the, of the rock and heads straight for her. Like a dad, I said, everybody move, and picked Ellie up and got out and had enough sense to go back and take a picture of him <laughs> so I could show that it actually happened. <laughs> uh, as we're walking, and, my, and our daughter's like, I'm done. Let's go back to the car right now. And she's like way ahead of us down the trail, right? And, and I'm thinking the whole time, oh, thank you, Lord. You know, I'm, 
This is a funny thing about me. I'm, I'm uh, very distracted by movement. So it's very frustrating. I'm sorry to my wife, but it's very frustrating uh, sitting in a restaurant because there's so much movement and I'm so distracted. So holding a conversation, I'm really sorry. It just, I remember doing, working with my dad as a kid and there was a TV on. Yeah, it was, it was bad. So I'm just distracted by movement. Well, this is one time that my fault of being distracted by movement, God used uh, to, to help us. I don't know whether that snake had nefarious motives, but... I'm sticking saying that he, he was not good. <laughs> and we're walking down the trail, and I'm, I'm just thinking the, the goodness of God in a, could have been a major thing. Turned out to be just a fun story, thankfully. But just, just the little things that God does that sometimes, you know, we can, we can say, well, you know, that's just how it happened. It's not. God has a hand in everything that's going on in your life. The challenging things, He's sovereign over all of that. You know, as we stood on the Mexican border and watched our daughter walk back into one of the most dangerous cities in the world, I'm thinking, do I, do I really believe God is sovereign? It's one thing to say it here. It's another thing when skin in the game. This is what it means, friends, to be a disciple of Jesus to see the moments in our lives and say, God, you were all in that. Even, even the ones that seem insignificant, the normal part of the day, as you're, as you're helping your kid, is seeing God at work in their lives. This grows our intimate knowledge of Jesus. When we see him, this is why sharing our testimonies with one another is so important, encouraging each other. I was talking to church members a couple weeks ago, and they shared a story of God intervening in their life. And it was, it was amazing to hear God just working. And, and I'm thinking, that's what God does. He just does things like that. And when we see him, we go, oh, you're so faithful. You're good. But even in those moments that we're suffering, in those moments that leave us with just a large question mark. Why, God? It's in those moments that, that we ask ourselves, do I really believe that God is sovereign as he says he is? This is a moment for me to reflect on that. Because if I believe that he is good, then I can trust him in this moment. If we are to understand the mission of the church and complete it, we first must be changed by Christ. This isn't something, as the Old Testament shows us, this isn't something that we can do in our own strength. I think that's why we have accounts like Solomon, the wisest of us all, could not fulfill the mission. Samson, the strongest, I mean, he, this dude ripped gates off of city walls. He was strong could not fulfill the mission. I think the narrative of Scripture points us to this is why we need Jesus. If you're here today and your life has not been transformed by the gospel, I want to invite you right here and right now to respond to what Christ has done for you and me. 
Jesus Christ, truly and fully God, took on flesh. He lived in perfect obedience, one thing we could not do. Perfect obedience to all of God's commands. And in his great mercy, he chose to offer up his life in your place. For those of us in Christ, we rejoice. This brings gratitude. If you're here this morning, you have not responded to the gospel. Salvation is yours in Christ. We respond to what Jesus has done with repentance and faith. We recognize that the death that Christ died was mine and yours by merit. The wrath and judgment of God, I deserve. But God, in his mercy and grace, sent Christ. Because Jesus was sinless, death had no rightful claim on him. Therefore, God vindicated him by rising, raising him from the dead, proving all that Jesus had declared as recorded in the Gospels and all throughout Scripture. God's glory is best displayed in Christ. And our right response to see, is to see the bitterness of our sin, to see the sweetness of Christ, and to turn away from our selfish pursuit to be our own little G-God, to repent and believe in the gospel. That salvation comes through Christ alone. We engage in making disciples with our words, substantiated by our actions. In Alan's prayer this morning, he referenced James chapter 1, verses 22 through 26. But James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We grow in our discipleship, and that's becoming more like Jesus by hanging out with people that are also becoming more like Jesus, by being in his word. And we make disciples with our words as well. Paul writes to the church in Colossians 3, verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the disciple component. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's the discipling component. Singing psalms, let our songs teach about Christ, hymns, spiritual songs, in, with thankfulness in our hearts to God. The answer to what is the mission of the church, being a disciple and making a disciple, it's not moralism. I will just do the right thing. That's not the answer. Nor is it legalism. If you just do the right thing, that's not the answer either. The answer is the gospel. If we take our focus off of ourselves and place our focus on Christ. It changes who we are and will also change what we do. I need to wrap this up. Church, glorifying God by being disciples and making disciples is our mission. This is the purpose of the community of God. This is why he's left us here, to resemble and represent him. If you are not engaging in this mission, you need to ask yourself, I encourage you to ask yourself why. 
There, there are many reasons. That's a good question. And it's good to identify the reasons why. Is it because there's sin in your life that you need to confess? Then I would encourage you, confess and repent and turn to Christ. Are you lacking confidence? Like, oh man, I, I would boast about Jesus, but I just, oh, I feel like I, I need to grow more. Well, one of the roles of the community of the church is to equip the saints, to be confident in our gospel proclamation. So we offer uh, resources that are available in the front table. I didn't grab one, but uh, in the front table, we have tracks. What is the gospel? Grab one of those. Read them. Grab 10 of them. Have them in your car, on your, in your backpack as you go to school. Like, Be ready to have a conversation with someone. We don't all need to be theologians. We do need to have a firm grasp on the gospel. What I love, has, as Pastor Sam asked me one time, how simply can you put the gospel? A group of guys, he was asking this. And we, we, we uh, what's the word I'm looking for? We boiled it down, that's the word. Boiled it down to three words. Jesus saves sinners. Start there. What is the gospel? Jesus saves, well, who's Jesus? What's sin? Why am I a sinner? You know, we can, we can build on that, right? But we need to know the gospel. We have a class that's coming up, uh, other tracks that we have available that can help with this process. This class called Two Ways to Live, uh, it's, it's a training method. Um, so be on the lookout this week for emails. Email me if you're not getting these emails so we can make sure we can fix that problem. I don't know that I can, but I will try. Uh, but there's resources within the church to help us grow in this. So if you're hesitant to share the gospel, oftentimes that will keep us from sharing the gospel. So I encourage you, grow. Grow in your accurate knowledge of who God is. I, can, I encourage you to consider attending a class, one of these classes. Um, being a disciple means doing what Jesus does. We worship together. We serve others. Proclaiming, we proclaim the gospel. We start new churches. All of these actions, actions are just what, what disciples do. It's a part of our DNA. It's what we do because it is who we are. Not the old Nate, but the new Nate in Christ. You can insert your name there. If you're interested in discussing more about the mission of the church, I invite you to remain after service. We're gonna be downstairs in the kids' area hosting a class on the doctrine of the church. We'll be talking about these, these concepts a little bit more, and I invite you uh, to join us. But my prayer for our church is that we would grow in our accurate knowledge of who God is, how he has designed his church to be and think and act, and as we grow in our accurate knowledge, we would grow in our intimate knowledge of God. As we see him at work within our community, within the lives of others, through prayer, worship, witness, that we would grow in our confidence to be disciples who think and act more like Christ and endeavor to obey Christ's command to make disciples to the glory of his great name. Amen? Let's pray. God, this morning, we come before you. We recognize, God, our great need for you. God, we also recognize that you are at work 
God, even in those things that, that push us, those things that maybe cause us to resist and, and reflect, Lord, I pray that you would do a good work in us and that ultimately, God, you would make us more like Christ. That's our greatest desire. That's our aim and our goal is to be more like you, Jesus. I pray, God, that as we grow in our likeness of Christ, we would also grow in the words that we use, that they would reflect Christ more accurately in, the, in the, even the thoughts that we think and, and the actions that we do, Lord, that, that we truly would be salt and light to the world around us. But God, we, we fully recognize this is not something in ourselves that we have the ability to do. So we look to you, Jesus. We pray that you would grow our love for you, our desire to hear your words so that we would be more like you. Grow that desire. Grow our love for your church. Grow our love for your word. God, give us opportunities. Help us to prepare for those opportunities to boast in who you are and what you have done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.